TorahCafe.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Exploring the Workings of the Soul. Last time, we were talking about what is the soul? What does the soul want? And we were describing the soul as the only part of the human, exi- the human existence, human experience, that is unchanging. Everything else, the emotions, the intellect, the physical appearance, is something that's constantly changing throughout life. And we expanded it and said everything in the physical world as a whole is constantly changing. It's indicative of something being physical, is changing. Doesn't, nothing stays the same. And we said that only the soul, only the spirit, and only the spirituality, godliness in the world, is what stays and has any type of permanence. Just like if you hold a match next to a bonfire, the little flame wants nothing more than to jump out into the large bonfire. Next time you go camping, try it out. So too, the soul, the little piece of God within all of us, wants to constantly go back, constantly be consumed, constantly have experience and feel the connection with its creator. In Judaism, the Torah, the mitzvahs that we have, number 613, 248 of those are positive commands, positive mitzvot. You you shall do this and you shall do that. And 365 things are things that we need to avoid, things that we have to abstain from. What's interesting is that 248 in the human being corresponds with the number of bones in the body. And 365 corresponds with the number of parts in the circulatory system. So each part, by by a Jew living the 613 mitzvot, they become a perfect vessel to have a godly connection. We say that each time a person does For example, one of the 248 positive mitzvahs, one of the 248 ways that we connect, we connect with the quote-unquote supernal man. God doesn't have an image, but in the sense that we, there are 248 ways to connect with the limbs of Hashem, meaning it's the 248 ways, positive ways that we have to connect with God. What's interesting is many of you are familiar with gematria, numerology. That's when you take a word in Hebrew that uh, and each letter represents a certain number. Aleph would be one, A would be one, B two, base would be two, and so forth. And words that share a, a, a common numerical equivalent are have some sort of relation with each other. Abraham, the word Abraham, Avram. Originally he was Abram. And then when he became circumcised, Hashem, God changed his name to Avraham. He added a hey. And he became a complete person. The word Avraham has the numeric value of 248. He is a perfect being at that time. In Judaism, we're taught that the soul of every person was created B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. The word B'Tselem Elohim, the words B'Tselem Elohim have the numeric equivalent, 248. 248. 
a perfect human being, a perfect human specimen. Through the 248 positive mitzvahs, we, in, we enhance, we connect, we reveal our connection that our soul has with Hashem, with God. So how come we don't always feel that? And how come if deep down within me what I want, really want is God, why is it that I don't sometimes think about God or think about spirituality? I think sometimes more about the hamburger in front of me or the Dolphins game on, or who's ahead, Romney, Obama, whatever. How come those are the things that are preoccupying my mind and not God? Well, the truth is, a lot of it has to do with our upbringing, and a lot of it has to do with the influences that surround us. The media, for example. You know, 200 years ago, up until about 200 years ago, God played a very, in a very centralized point in human life. People were very concerned. It was, a, it was the center of attention. Everything revolved around God, connecting to God. Whether it was Judaism or not, everyone was very into God. About 200 years ago, God lost his central place in our Western society. And instead, he was replaced with hundreds of other secular tonics meant to give order and purpose to our existence. You take out something, there's a vacuum there, there's a hole there, got to fill it with something. Equality, democracy, capitalism, socialism, communism, relativism, nationalism, secular humanism, you name it. The list can go on forever. These are the things that replaced or stood in, filled the vacuum, filled the void of purpose and meaning of which humanity should go after instead. By the end of the 20th century, through material abundance, and mind-deadening, endless routines and senseless diversions, people have become immune to the cry of their own heart. That which we really want, that's what we're really thirsting for. We don't even know where to turn to drink. Eric Fromm, a German sociologist, writes in his book, The Sane Society, says, I pose a question for you. Suppose movies radio, television, sports events, and newspapers ceased for one month. What would be the reaction? They stopped. There was no television on. You couldn't get internet. You couldn't get a radio station, a newspaper, nothing. What would be the reaction? Hysteria, anxiety. People would go out of their minds. What are we supposed to do now? We see how much society or the ideology that has been pumped in us affects what gives us importance, what makes us feel good, what, make, what makes us feel like we're something. Everyone's got to have a cell phone, right? Just took a birthright trip uh, with a bunch of kids, 40 kids to Israel. And a lot of them, I mean, obviously everyone says, you know, the more spiritually inclined say their favorite part was the coattail, going to the Western Wall. And those less, you know, people have Sada, I liked floating in the Dead Sea, whatever it was that you enjoyed doing, fine. Some people commented that one of their favorite parts, because when you go overseas, most people didn't have a cell phone. And so they were able to 
talk to people and relate to people and experience everything that they were getting involved in without any sort of distraction. It was such a boom, boom, boom. You know, we're, we're focusing over here and then we're going over here, running over here. There was no time to check your, update your Facebook. There was no time to like text message somebody. People didn't care. People didn't want it. And they could talk to one another. Imagine that. Hey, wow. What a concept. Like talking to the person next to you, not like 100 miles away. Or you're, you know. If you look at the way that advertisements, the slogans, everything in the media seeks to constantly repeat in order to reprogram us, to, to fill that permanence that our soul can identify with. They make a poster, they make a slogan or a song in such a way that 20 years after the product doesn't even exist anymore, you still remember it. So the idea is not to chuck your TV out the, out the window, although it wouldn't be that bad for your spiritual life. But that's not the idea. And it's not to shut off the radio, and it's not to stop reading newspapers and turn off your internet and close down your Facebook page. The point is, where's our enthusiasm lie? We have to identify what is the real me, what can I cultivate in the real me, how do I get back to the real me, get reconnected, reveal the connection that already exists, and have everything else, but it's more like a side dish. There's a principle in Judaism called tshuva. And at this time of the year, tshuva, which literally means to return, is active on everybody's mind. We're in the month of Elul. We're standing three weeks before Rosh Hashanah, before New Year, New Beginnings. We're reassessing and trying to enhance our connection with God. In Judaism, the concept of tshuva is very different than it is in other faiths. Many faiths have the, the protocol is repent, repentance, repent ye sinner. In Judaism, it's very different. Tshuva, to return, is get back to who you are, essentially. Meaning that you're not this horrible being that needs to repent. You are intrinsically a diamond that merely has some schmutz on it. <laughs> and the job of tshuva is just to unmask that diamond. Just to wipe away the dust that has covered it for so long through television, through radio, and all the other things, all the ideologies and things that we get into that aren't spiritual. Again, the idea is not to throw these things out the window, but just to realize that that's the side dish of life. That's not our enthusiasm in life. That's not why we're here. Tshuva in Judaism sort of like time travel. Anyone like science fiction? Truth of the matter is, these days, the idea of time travel is becoming less and less science fiction and more and more close to science fact. Those who are into quantum physics realize what they discover about, let's say, the electron, that the electron functions in a way that no one else, no one ever imagined. Not, it's not like your science textbook that you remember from high school, where you have like the we have the nucleus, and then the electron is like that little ball that circles around. It doesn't work so much like that. The way that they describe the electron 
is that it's completely unpredictable and that it functions past, present, future, simultaneously. It can be in two places at once. All sorts of wild things that they're discovering. And the more they discover about that, the more they can open doors to further discovery. Furthermore, we know one of the big discoveries of the, of the 20th century is how time and space are one entity. Time and space are one entity. And the research has shown, the physicists have learned out, the math has been available and proven since the early 1900s, that the faster you go, the slower time moves. To understand the full depth of it, talk to your local physicist. Tonight we're just getting the kind of overview. But the faster that a person goes, in theory, the, fa the closer they get to the speed of light, because officially nothing can go faster than the speed of light, the, clo the closer you go to the speed of light, the more time slows down. And if you were to reach the speed of light, time would stop. And what happens if you can surpass the speed of light? Ooh, this time is not moving backwards. I don't know, that's what they think. And they've done experiments. You know, if, if, if you were to have two stopwatches, and one were here, and they started and stopped at the exact same time. They start, okay, let's go. One person gets on an airplane, and they fly around in the airplane for a while, okay? And then the plane lands, and they look at the stopwatches. They've measured that it's slightly off. The one in the airplane is slightly behind. Slightly, ever so slightly, because the plane doesn't get even close to the speed of light. But ever so slightly, it's behind the one that was down here. If two twins who were born exactly the same time, one got in a spaceship that went close to the speed of light and then returned to Earth, he would have experienced time in a very, very slow way, whereas his twin brother is going to be an old man by now. It's an amazing concept. And the idea of time travel, how past, present, future is really just a facade, is becoming more and more revealed to the forefront. Tshuva works like time travel. Tshuva returning works a little bit like time travel. We're taught in the Talmud, the Gemara in Yuma teaches that Tshuva is great. It can transform full sins, full wrongdoings that a person did in their past into accidental sins, or if it's a really good quality, they can even become merits. A person really returns to Hashem, really returns to God, now in the present, it affects and uplifts their entire past that they've had. Meaning that all those sins and all those things that we have done that we regret can be uplifted and elevated and become good. Become means, catalysts that led you to get on the right path. So forgiveness of tshuva in the present nullifies misdeeds of the past. The truth of the matter is, according to Judaism, and according to physics, time is an illusion. Time is a creation, according to Judaism. Time was created. When the world was created, time was also created. Rav Dessler says in his writings that when a person passes away, they will see how time was an illusion, 
how past, present, and future really exist simultaneously all at the same time. The concept right now for us to understand is, is completely beyond our mind because we function in a three-dimensional world. That's the reality that we know. But at, the way he explains it is that past, present, and future all exist simultaneously at the same time. And that after we pass, after the soul leaves the body, we'll be privy to see that and feel that. In fact, the researchers, Raymond Moody and others, who have delved into uh, looking into patients who have had uh, near-death experiences, one of the descriptions in describing the experience that they had was that they felt past, present, and future all existing simultaneously at the same time. Again, what that means and how, how, what that feels like is not something we can relate to. But just to know the idea that the reality is past, present, and future are all one is an interesting idea to think about when it comes to tshuva. When we connect to Hashem, when we seek to reconnect, when we return, those things, those wrongs that we did in our past, through the tshuva that we're doing now, can be uplifted to merits or can be not counted against us. Hashem's, God's name, one of the names that he's described, the highest name that he's described as is a yud with a hey and then a vav and a hey. It's called the tetragrammaton in non-Jewish writings. A yud with a, with a hey and a vav and a hey. That word, which we don't pronounce, is a contraction of the words for past, present, and future. God, He who exists, He the one who is beyond past, present, and future. So when we connect to God, all the things that we've done in the past that we regret, that we could have and should have done differently, can be erased. Rabbi Yosef Ber Soloveitchik says in his commentary on the Machser that the concept of tshuva, whereby a person can erase and even elevate previous sinful actions, suggests that there exists an alternative reality where one can transcend time and causality through the exercise of free will. Through connecting to Hashem now, we can uplift and transform our entire past life. The Talmud, the Gemar Nedarim, says that God created tshuva, created this concept of returning tshuva, the idea, before the creation of the world. Meaning that tshuva transcends time. Tshuva is above time, was created before time. So when we do tshuva, when we return, when we reconnect our essence through the 613 mitzvahs that connect us with our source, we can uplift and perfect and enhance, not just now, not just this moment, but our entire lives. So a person might think to themselves, you know, I'm so ingrained, I'm so set in my ways, I'm so, you know, I have my life, I have... No one's asking anyone to change overnight. No one's asking anyone to really change so much. We have to realize that in the divine, in the grand scheme of things, 
every little bit that we do, every step that we take up the ladder of life is not to be taken for granted. Life is not about perfection. It's about the journey. It's a path that we're constantly ascending, a ladder that we're constantly climbing. And every step that we take has cosmic impact. A person shouldn't think, well, I'm not a fully spiritual person. I'm not a fully observant Jew. What connection do I have to this or that? I feel hypocritical if I'm just going to do part of it. And that's the wrong attitude. Point blank. We have to look at everything that we do do as one more connection that we're making. One more piece of the diamond that's able to expose itself. The determination of a soul can overcome any obstacle. Be it physical, emotional, intellectual, or even spiritual. How many people, how many famous people do we know that the spirit, their soul, their deep desire allowed them to transcend their limitations? Look at Helen Keller. Physical limitations. Deaf, blind. Meanwhile, she graduates college, becomes a national lecturer, and authors seven books, one of which describes her profound spiritual life. Look at Beethoven, one of the greatest composers of all time, who lost his hearing when he was 20 years old. Look at Christopher Reeves in our own lives who played Superman. And then after the accident, where he was left almost completely paralyzed, we saw what a real Superman he was. Look at Monet, the artist who painted his greatest works, including the famous Water Lilies painting, later in life when he was almost completely blind. Look at Stephen Hawking, the academic celebrity, famous astrophysicist who's, who's almost completely paralyzed, talks through a machine, can't move his mouth, talks through a machine, and yet his theories that he's come up with in our generation are compared to Einstein and the greatest of scientists that have ever lived. Look at Einstein himself. Many people think that he had Asperger's. He didn't talk fluently until he was nine. He failed his college entrance exam and frequently had difficulty remembering simple things like his telephone number or how to tie his shoes. So with even those limitations, physical limitations, emotional limitations, intellectual limitations, if the soul wants, if we're in touch with the soul, it can triumph over everything. But what about spiritual limitations? Thank God everyone in this room looks healthy, physically, I would imagine most of us emotionally and intellectually as well. Barbara for sure. But what about spiritually? We all want to grow spiritually. And sometimes we feel confined because unless I do everything, 
I'm not, or I'm, I'm already well into my life. I'm 30 years old. I'm 40 years old. 50, 60, I'm 70 years old. I have my life, you know, I'm used to my things. I have my routine. I drink my OJ in the morning. I read my paper. I go to work. I come home. I watch TV. And whatever. I talk to my wife, maybe. And I go to sleep. I'm so fixed. Spiritually, how can I grow? Did you know in Judaism, in Jewish history, some of the greatest sages and some of the greatest philosophers came about their... Judaism came about their connection with God later on in life or when they had not such a good upbringing or confused upbringing. There's a Talmudic sage named Resh Lakish who after living a life like abandoned for many years became one of the greatest sages of the Talmud through Teshuvah, through repentance, through getting back in line. They're returning to his roots, returning to who he really is. Getting rid of all the muck that had come upon him. The famous Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. Everyone's heard of Rabbi Akiva. There's a song that the kids sing in Cheder. That that, uh, Rabbi Akiva, when he was 40 years old, until he was 40 years old, he was very against the Torah sages of the time. Very against Torah, against the sages, very against. When he was 40 years old, or during that period of time, he was walking along the way and he saw a drops of water that had been hitting a rock for obviously a long time because the rock itself had like a, uh, had become like uh, hollow. It made like a dent in the rock. So how long does uh, drops of water have to be falling to make a dent in a rock? So that's when it clicked in his mind that if this little drop of water can affect, can mold, can influence, can change this hard rock, how much more so can Torah, which is compared to water, affect my heart, which is soft? And so when he was 40 years old, he went to the little cheder, little kindergarten, didn't know olive base, and he began to learn. That was that was the beginning of the one we know as Rabbi Akiva. Forty years old, didn't even know the Aleph base. Most of us in this room are already ahead of him. And then there's a very interesting story, one that's much less known. But it's a story that's brought down in several places. It's brought down, the, the, the art scroll Machser brings it down in, in a short version. The Rebbe brings, it, uh, brings the story down in uh, Talks and Tales. It's the story of the Jewish Pope. In the, in the 11th century, in a town called Mainz, there was a rabbi, a beloved rabbi, named Rabbi Shimon Hagadol, Rabbi Shimon the Great. And he was very well known for his poems that he would write. They were called piyutim, different poems. He was very, very gifted at, at writing praises of God in the form of poems. 
And many of them we have today that are part of our Siddur and our Machser. So this Rebbe Shimon HaGadol had a son named Elchanan. And Elchanan was a very good boy. And one time when he was four years old, he came over to his father and saw that his father had actually written a piyut, had written a hymn, a poem, using his name as, as, um, as an acrostic, meaning that Elchanan, the first letter Aleph, was the, the key to he one. His name, Elchanan, his son's name, Elchanan, to write a poem. The first, the first letter of the first sentence was an Aleph, the second one, and so forth. So that if you looked at the, the first letter of each sentence going down, it spelled out Elchanan. And to be exact, it spelled out Elchanan Nahalato. Elchanan Nahalato, which means, it, it's based on a verse, it says, God is gracious unto his heritage. And so this boy Elchanan noticed that his father had written a beautiful poem using his name involved in the, in the verse. Elchanan Nahalato. Which means God is gracious to his heritage. Fine. So we asked, Dad, what does this mean? What God is gracious to his heritage. It means that no matter how far a person strays from spiritual, no matter how, uh, how much a person's preoccupations become with the physical or become with everything else except for God and Torah, Judaism, whatever, that Hashem is always willing and able to take them back. And whenever a person makes steps in the right direction, so Hashem welcomes them with open arms. So the boy took it to heart. The boy fell sick sometime after that. And they had a maid. And the maid, her name was Margaret. And one time when the when Rabbi Shimon and the family had gone, Margaret, their maid, kidnapped the boy. Kidnapped him. She was a devout Catholic. She brought him to the monastery, and he was still very sick. So he recovered, and he was, you know, he was learning in the in the in the church. Part of his sickness was that his memory also was going. Anyway, he recovered, and he, he was a very sharp boy. He wasn't he was he was very sharp. His memory wasn't at, at its best, but very very sharp, and he impressed. The local priest, the local monastery. He made a name for himself. He was very, he was a very scholarly person, and he went through life in this monastery, and eventually went to Rome. When in Rome, he was also noticed by the Pope, whatever. When Pope Gregory the Seventh passed away, this little boy, who was then a cardinal, was elected Pope, and took on the name. Victor the Third, Pope Victor the Third in the eleventh century. Well, anyway, long story short, Rabbi Shimon ends up meeting with this Pope, who he doesn't know is his son who was kidnapped. He ends up meeting with him, and they meet together in order to. The Rabbi Shimon is trying to talk to the Pope about anti-Semitism that's happening in his town and asking for help with dealing with it. That the that. Uh, that those who are being anti-Semitic should stop or cool it or whatever. And he was trying to get the Pope's assistance. 
And so they would have they had a long conversation, and throughout the amidst the conversation, the the topic of what Rabbi Shimon does came about that he is a he writes poetry, hymns, piyutim, and he, the Pope asked to see some of them. He looked through them, he saw them. He says, "Do you have any more?" And Rabbi Shimon began to cry. And he says, I have one that I always keep on me, but it's especially meaningful. And this was the piyut, this was the poem that he had written about his son Elchanan. And he took it out and he showed Pope Victor III. And Pope Victor remembered it. He remembered when he was four years old, before he got sick, this poem that his father had composed about him, and the message that was attached to it, that no matter how much a person gets involved in everything else of the world, all the other trails of life, if a person seeks to reconnect with Judaism, reconnect with God, reconnect with their soul, who they are deep down, that they'll never be turned away. So, there's various endings of how the story ends, but they all conclude with a similar theme, that he got back on track with his Jewish roots, he did teshuva, he returned to himself, he returned to him, who he was, a Jew. And that's how he died. You know, in, in our own times, there's just as a little uh, interesting factoid, there's Cardinal Lustiger. In our times, Cardinal Lustiger, who's the Archbishop of Paris, his parents were both taken off to Auschwitz. He's a Jew. Parents were both taken off to Auschwitz. And he was, in, when he was a teenager, he was entrusted to Christians to save his life and he's been since that time involved in the church and now he's one of the biggest cardinals but in theory he could could be elected pope he's a Jew fully Jew Cardinal Listiger I hope that he has the same feelings of tshuva as his could be predecessor also had the point is first of all that if the Pope can return to Judaism and the Pope can get reconnected with Torah, so can all of us. And even if the Pope can't, we still can. The point is not to take on everything, not to look at everything as one big thing, like, oh my gosh, we're gonna change my life over here and I gotta rearrange, I gotta start throwing out dishes and canceling my weekend plans and whatever. Let's think small practical goals. Every step along the way means everything to God. There is no big and small when dealing with God and dealing with getting reconnected. Not reconnected. We're always connected. Just bringing out, enhancing that connection. I'd like to just end with a little story that's very apropos to the new year. It's a story that is told over by the Divri Chaim 
the famous Sanzarov, who lived around 200 years ago. He says, there's, a, there's a, an analogy of a king who has his son, the prince. And his son, the prince, was doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. So the king, like any good father, they didn't have boarding schools, so he sends him off to work. He says, you know, boy should learn a little discipline, get out of the palace for a little bit, know what it's like to earn a day's wage, and go live amongst the farmers, and shovel, and rake, and do all the things that farmers do. Put a real sweat into your day. Teach you some discipline. So, he sent off his son, sent off the prince, and a week goes by, a month goes by, several months go by, a year goes by, he's, and he's working very hard. And the king had a custom that he would go around his kingdom, he was a good king, go around his kingdom, and allow people, when he would come to each village, to throw their requests for aid, for help, for whatever they needed to the king, and the king would look at it and consider, you know, if, if he can do it or how he can help, and he would try and help them the best that he could. So, people throw and whatever. He gets to his son's village, and he's very excited because he's hoping that his son is going to say, you know, Dad, sorry, just can I come back to the palace now? And of course, the king would be, you know, accepting. So he notices his son throw in the throw in his scroll to the to the king's chariot. The king is very excited, rips it open, opens it up, and his son's request is, "My father, the king, our work is very difficult. Our shovels have become rusted. Can we please have some new shovels?" Our rakes have become broken. Can we please have some new rakes? Constant, a, a, a whole list of new supplies. And all things connected with the work. Forgetting the whole purpose of what he was really sent there to do. We have to know that each one of us is a child, a prince or a princess of the king. They're each firstborn children of Hashem. We're children of God. And all our Father in Heaven wants from us, come the day like Rosh Hashanah, is to ask, please let us come home. Let us get reconnected. Let me expose and enhance my spiritual self. Let me do more mitzvot. Let me share in that connection with the real me. What do we ask for instead? I'd like a new car. You know, money's been tight. God, please help me. And these are all good things. But we have to remember that these are means to an end. What's the reason that we want money? What's the reason that we want a car? What's the reason that we want a house? And a job? And a family? In order to have a stable family, and in order, to, in order to have a spiritual connection. That's, we get so caught up in the externalities, in the superficialities. Forget the whole purpose why we want those things or what they're really meant to accomplish. So when it comes to this Rosh Hashanah, 
or don't you have to wait to Rosh Hashanah. Let's think in our life how we can enhance our connection to the real us a little bit more. Have a great night.